Now I'm on. <laughs> I just realized in my resurrected body, I want Heather's voice. <laughs> We're all going to be English. With her accent and her voice. Just hearing her talk, I have to be careful not to kind of drift off. And uh, it's like, oh, yeah, wait, I can't listen too long. <laughs> No, no, no. I, you, you pull me in this. When you were reading the word the other day, I thought, oh, I want you on cassette. Um, not cassette. That dates me, doesn't it? What is it now? Yeah, there we go. Well, some of you weren't here last night, and I don't know. I always like when I'm listening to anybody and hearing their heart, I kind of like to know a little bit where they're coming from and why they're talking about what they're talking about. So for those of you that didn't hear weren't here last night, I, I just kind of want to do a brief overview of, we all have a prophetic story and a testimony in Jesus, and um, John and I, when we met, we weren't believers, um, and his parents were, I, I grew up nothing, I mean, nothing, I had no religious affiliation, I knew a few Catholic people that went to church, and you know, Jesus was just a baby in a manger at, at Christmas time, and it was such good news when, um, well, first then I met John, and he was really hungry for something more. He grew up Jewish. His parents were Holocaust survivors. And um, it was the 1970s. We were both, you know, from a little bit of a rebellious, well, pretty rebellious attitude. You know, a lot of people were back then. We were the hippie generation of the early 70s. And when we met, um, it, we knew we were supposed to be together, and... Uh, but but we just went searching for something, and we ended up finding Jesus. And um, and it was he took us to a home fellowship, which was really nice of him because if it had been a church, it would have been probably hard on John. And anyway, that's that's another story. But the man who led us to the Lord, you know, he just the way he talked about Jesus just made me want to know him. And you know, just really a lifelong quest to know him intimately because he's was so fascinating to me when I first met him. And, and so John and I had this problem, though, initially, and that was his family, who already was upset because he'd married a Gentile, and they had lost all their family in Nazi Germany. And, you know, it's hard to explain to Holocaust survivors that it wasn't Christians that killed their family members. It was, it was evil people that didn't know the Lord. But anyway, in their mind, um, not that they were bitter against Christians, um, but in their mind, if your son marries a, or daughter marries a Gentile, they'll convert them to Christianity. And I, I convinced his mother that she didn't need to worry. Um, I was not a Christian, and I was not going to affect her son. <laughs> and she didn't need to worry about that, that I believed in God, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't, and she seemed that that was good. But uh, anyway, a year later, you know, to her horror, her worst nightmare came true, and we became believers. And it was no more my fault than his fault, but she didn't know that. So now I had two strikes against me. And her main goal in life was to get me in the mikvah. It's, it's a baptism, and that's what you do when you convert. And I, I knew I wasn't going to do that, but the best I could do was we would go to holidays and honor them, at, you know, the fall high holidays, and go to their house for Shabbat and do Passovers and and I explained last night that when I was asking questions at my first Passover Seder is when um, he revealed himself to me in a ceremony called 
the Afikoman when there's a bag of three matzahs and they took out the middle one, broke it, wrapped it in a white linen napkin and then hid it so the children could find it later and get a, a prize. And I asked the man, John's family, well, was somebody that lived with them who was doing the Seder, I said, well, what does that represent? And they said, oh, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. And I, I was a new believer, and I didn't know much yet, but I, I said, well, does Isaac die? And they said, well, no. And I said, well, why does he get broken? And they said, well, uh, we, you know, I don't know. You know, they just kind of moved me on and were annoyed. And, and I sat there, and it didn't make sense to me that they didn't have a, a, a better answer to my question. And and um, I was sitting there, and the Holy Spirit said to me, that's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, the Son is broken, wrapped in a burial cloth, and all those who have a childlike spirit will find me. And I was so astounded. First of all, Judaism and Christianity were worlds apart. And I was just a new believer learning, you know, what it was to be a Christian. And I, I couldn't understand what he was doing in this Jewish ceremony. And I was so confused and went home that night and said, well, if you were in that ceremony, what other festivals are you in? And he said, all of them, Christianity is Jewish. And it was so surprising to me. Well, in the midst of this, you know, there's multiple things going on in our lives at the same time. It wasn't that I only was focusing on the Jewish festivals. That was one of the things I was doing. You know, we were active in our church and excited to be new believers. And in a period of 10 years, I had two really dramatic bridal, you know, meeting Jesus as the bridegroom encounters. And those are stories in themselves, and I won't take the time to tell them now, but, you know, they were, you know, life-changing, where I realized that, you know, that's what I wanted, a burning heart, lovesick for him, and... I'd always, after one, I would say, well, I, I, I know the feelings disappear after you have the encounter, but it makes you to yearn for the next encounter with him. And I realized later, as I was studying all the festivals, about 20 years into setting up the festivals each year, I was on a quest to know him and find him. He said he was in the festivals, and I wanted to know him. So I wasn't a, trying to become a scholar on the festivals. I just would set them up as prophetic pictures, which they are. They're all about Jesus. And I would ask them, where is your heart? How can I find you? Where are you, Jesus? And these ceremonies that the Jewish people have carried for 3,500 years. If you're in the Afikoman, that little ceremony at Passover, there's got to be multitude of places, treasures, nuggets to pick up. And, you know, what I found over these 38 years, 39 years of looking for him is that he's absolutely everywhere. And the language of the festivals is all through the Bible. And all the festivals are about a love story. And that, it took a while for that to even hit. Because, you know, it's easy to, we're Greek thinkers. You know, we, we're kind of linear. You know, you learn step by step by step. And I was still, com- at first, compartmentalizing the feast. Well, this is Passover, and then there's this, and then there's that. And after a while, I realized that, no, it's one big story, and it's one big divine romance. And you can't separate the beginning from the end, because he started somewhere in the Garden of Eden when he lost a bride, an intimate partner. And all of the Bible is getting to the point where he's going to get that bride back. And when you see the Bible in that way of one long love story, 
that's punctuated with all this language throughout, then your heart's alive when you're reading the word, when you're, you know, you're looking for them in that way all the time. I think it was Bill Johnson that said, the biggest tragedies and one of the biggest tragedies in life are those that, that interpret the Bible without being in love. And that's really true. You know, when our hearts are alive in love, we're looking for him. And we're looking for the one we love because we have lovesick hearts. So we're always asking, where are you? It was Mike Bickle years ago that um, taught me to look for the emotions of God in the Bible. And that's something in this spring feast we're going to talk about, the last spring feast, is I finally, after asking him for you know, 30-some years where his emotions were in this feast, that he finally showed them to me, and then my heart could come alive. But God's emotions are all through the Bible, and he's Hebrew. He's not Greek. He has that passionate, he speaks in pictures, he speaks in love language, you know, sometimes in ways that are not kosher for us. You know, there's some shocking things that are in the Bible sometimes. But I found the love story, and then all of a sudden I thought, oh, I know why I had these bridal encounters with him, with a bridegroom, because the festivals, there's a bridegroom there, and he's wooing and drawing a bride through his festivals, and he wanted me to have that lens, so when I studied the festivals, I would finally get it. It just took me a long time. So when I'm talking about the festivals, I'm not talking about a study I went on, although there was a lot of study that happened on the way where he would show me things, but it was more just setting up the pictures, doing them with a group of people, and asking him where his heart was, and asking him for revelation, as I did. So I just wanted to share with you. John and I are an um, interesting picture because he was so excited. He's always loved the church. When, when Messianic believers would try to get us into their congregations, no, I love the church. You know, The Jewish people are supposed to be part of the body of Christ. You know, we're not supposed to be off separate. And he's always loved the church. And... I was off becoming a Jew, and he was off kind of becoming a Gentile. So it's kind of like, it was, it's kind of been a funny story. But anyway, I kind of, there's, there's a lot of places I want to go, but I want to end up on that mountain at Mount Sinai and Moses at a wedding ceremony. So that's my goal. But I, I kind of feel like it's important to um, have a, found, a little bit of a foundation of the way Jewish people think and how... Because if you understand the main theme of redemption that's woven throughout the whole Bible, then all of a sudden there's a lot of verses and a lot of the festivals and a lot of everything starts kind of making sense. So um, recently I was sharing at this mobs group, uh, young mothers group, and um, I I was reading the verse, you know, we're all familiar with it in Romans 11, 16 through 18. I think I read over it for years thinking, oh, that's interesting, but I'm not really sure what it means. Um, It's about that grafted in verse. It says, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And so we know we're grafted in branches as Gentile believers. We're grafted into some ancient root that was there before the first century. 
And I asked this group of moms, I said, well, you know, have you ever thought about it? What does it mean to be grafted in? And some of their answers were kind of interesting. And like mine, it probably would have, we really didn't know. We knew that we were part of a Jewish people and, and that Jesus was Jewish and our Savior was Jewish. But, you know, we didn't really know what that really meant. And, um, but it says in Galatians 3, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And um, so there's something there. There's a root, and it's got to be a good, rich root because Jesus, you know, we were grafted into it. So if he has abundant life for us, there's something in that root that we can glean from that's important. And, you know, the, the first question is when people start seeing the riches found in the Jewish roots is, well, why didn't anybody ever tell us this before? And, you know, there's all sorts of people that get angry at the church fathers and they kept all this information and why didn't we have it? And the last thing we want to do is get angry because we have 1,800 years of faithful church fathers who carried a flame and a torch, you know, for all those years and a, through the dark ages and through times when it, it almost went out. So there's an honoring of our heritage, even as Gentile believers. It's not that it was we were in the dark and we didn't have this fullness. It just was the fact that it wasn't time. You know, that we're living at a prophetic time now where God's bringing us all into a new understanding. I think there's a new reformation about ready to begin. I think there's a new identity about ready to be released because we have a rich inheritance and it hasn't been kept from us, although the enemy has not wanted us to have it. But God kept it hidden for this time in history. You know, Israel just became a state, you know, well, in 1948 recently, pretty recently. And, and um, you know, there's, there's some shift going on. Now we're, we see the, these four blood-red moons that always have to do with what God's doing on the earth and especially concerning the nation of Israel, which concerns us. So there's some shift going on, and it's just time now. And, and the illustration that we think of is, just like in Egypt, there was 430 years of slavery. And then there was a time of silence for 400 years, where no one, there was, you know, the prophets weren't speaking. And then Jesus came down to earth, and then 30 years later he began his ministry. So there's another 430 years. You know, there's a uh, so there, there's all these ti- at, there's appointed times. You know, God came down in the Exodus story at His appointed time to set His people free, just like Jesus came at His appointed time. And there's an interesting illustration if you think of the story of Joseph, who disappeared into a Gentile form. He became a Gentile king, took on a Gentile name, and was placed in a and a place of authority, and was hidden. When his brothers came for provision, they could not recognize him because he no longer looked like their Jewish brother. But there was a time when he took them aside into a room, and he revealed himself and took off his Egyptian garb and said in Hebrew, I am Joseph. You know, so there was an appointed time for that identity. And I just see it as the time of the Gentiles. It's almost like Jesus has hidden, was hidden in a Gentile form. The Jews could not recognize him anymore. You know, Jewish people couldn't see that he was the Messiah because he was Greek to them. You know, he took on a, almost a Greek form. And the Jewishness of our faith was pretty much removed for 1,800 years. 
And so there wasn't any understanding. So it's not about anybody being mad at anybody else. It's just about the timing. And so now is a time where he's revealing that that root that we're grafted into, there's a rich inheritance there. And it was already going on before Jesus came on the scene. It's a culture. We're grafted into a family and a culture that has identity. It isn't just a theology we're grafted into. It's, it's really likened to adoption. The Jewish idea of adoption is when you're grafted into another tribe, you take on the name and the blood. And whatever your tribe was before that time is totally forgotten, totally renounced. You're now remembered as from that name and that blood. It, it goes back to ancient Israel and how, like Caleb was an example of that. He was adopted into the tribe of Judah. And he was no longer after that time remembered as a Canaanite. He was, and so that's the idea of adoption. So when you're grafted in, you take on the name and you take on the blood and you take on an identity. But if you adopted a child, you wouldn't go according to the culture of the child that you'd adopted. That child would become part of your family and your culture and your traditions. So I believe that God wants us to start learning this family that has been there and we've been adopted into. So I just want to... Um, just share with you briefly about their idea, what a Jewish idea of is of redemption and how it's the, the key to unlocking a lot of things. Uh, when I was first starting out in all this, I was kind of mentored, if you want to say it like that, by um, John's mother, who was my Naomi. I, you know, she, I was, always took care of her and I was always a part of her Jewish world, taking her on errands and doing things. And so it was more than just reading things in books. I started seeing this, some kind of philosophy that they were living, that the Jewish people were living in her community. And the more I saw it, the more I started becoming jealous of something that they carried. It was like they had a vision for something or some place that they were headed that they had in common, and they lived according to it. There was a, something about generation to generation. There was something about the connection between old people and young people. There was something about always being there for each other. Always, um, there was some kind of glue, and there was something that always had this idea to it that life always won. Life always triumphed over darkness. You know, that, that there was something about you choose life and you keep on living. And I saw this lived out for the first time uh, at my first Jewish funeral when John's dad died. And um, if you've ever been to a Jewish uh, funeral, they wail. And, you know, my upbringing was you don't show any emotions, you know. And and they wail and mourn. And, you know, the, the casket is all at the graveside. And the man that was part of their family that lived with them was standing next to me. And he was just wailing. And I did a lot of non um, very Gentile things because I was just learning and I when he was wailing I you know the thing you do is you reach out and comfort somebody and want to pat them you know and like they're there it's okay you know and he was just and he he threw my arm off and he said don't do that and I thought wow that was kind of rude but I knew I'd done something that wasn't appropriate for the funeral and their idea of of Life and death, it's, it's that Ecclesiastes that there's a time for everything 
you know, there's a time for mourning. There's a time for rejoicing. And this was a time for mourning. And so you don't shut down feelings in a time of mourning. You allow feelings, the mourning, to go on. And they, it does for seven days. And, you know, at the end of seven days, the person who lost someone gets up, walks around the block, and they choose life. And it's a declaration that death can't win. Life always has to triumph over death. Even though you're still grieving, you choose to keep living for the generations that come after you. You can't let depression and all those things get you down because you have this mandate to be a redeemer and to live and to carry that mandate to future generations. So there's always this, you know, I kept seeing this proclamation of life. And, you know, here they were Holocaust survivors and had lost everything. And I saw them living and proclaiming that with the way they lived and the way they loved. And so it's that idea. It's called Takun Olam. It's, it's redeeming the world or repairing the world. And I started reading in Jewish books, you know, what this concept meant, that it was it was, was that idea that um, that one day this, this world is going to be perfected. Jewish people believe that in the garden something was lost and that that intimacy with God was lost and that there's a Redeemer coming, that they've always known him to be the Messiah. And this plan of redemption is that one day God's throne is coming to earth. If you talk to a lot of Jewish people and ask them about heaven, they don't have much to say about heaven because they believe heaven's coming to earth, which is very scriptural. You know, that one day, God's throne, when this whole planet is redeemed, then his throne is coming down and we're going to rule and reign with him forever. And so they always talk about the day when his throne's coming to earth and God will be ruling and reigning as the conquering king. So their idea of redemption is getting to the point of the earth has obviously been destroyed. It was destroyed in the, or fallen in the, in the Garden of Eden. But there's one day coming there's a destination in mind. And on that day, all things will be redeemed. And they believe that they were married to God on Mount Sinai. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. I'm just giving you an overview of their view of redemption that I found really interesting. And when they married God on Mount Sinai, they were given the mandate to become co-redeemers with him. That he was redeeming the world. And together, as his partner, as his marriage partner, they were to be redeemers. Because they were called to bring light and salt. They were to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. They were called to bring light to the Gentiles. It was their torch or their mandate to make sure that not only were they going to bring the Messiah, but they were going to bring this redemption that one day was going to cover the earth and, you know, God would be, you know, that would be foreverlasting paradise on earth once more. So with this vision of where they're headed to be redeeming with God until that day, I saw that they had a common vision that each generation was moving for. So you live your life making, becoming redeemers as much as you can because then you're handing it to the It's got to be progressive to make it to the end. And so this, this view of, um, I loved that whole idea of life triumphing and that you don't, in the midst of the Holocaust, you don't sit and become victims. You rise up and build, and you rebuild for your children and your children's children, and you, you redeem rather than become bitter, because bitterness is death. And so I loved that, and I loved that view of redemption. 
And I loved the fact that, um, that's, that they had a common vision because without a vision, we perish. And that's really our vision. That's part of what we've been grafted into. We're redeemers. We're to be salt in life. And um, so also, they believed in a Messiah. They believed that there was a coming one, a Goel. He was called a redeemer that was going to come. And every day, still to this day, although they don't see that Jesus was the, the uh, Messiah, they will. I mean, some of them did or we wouldn't have had a church. But they still, every day in synagogue, will say, you know, I believe in perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah. And if he should tarry, I'll wait for him. So there's always this looking, everything is centered around this Goel, the the Redeemer that's coming. They didn't believe him to be a divine person. He was just an anointed, charismatic person that was coming. And that's why they've missed it a few times, because there have been Jewish charismatic people that some people thought were the Messiah. But um, um, this Messiah that they were looking for, there was a confusion because they had two concepts of who the Messiah would be. One of them they saw to be a suffering servant Messiah, and he was known as Messiah ben Joseph. And there's a lot of scriptures about that that I can give you. Um, and then there was another, the other um, concept of the Messiah was the conquering king Messiah. And that's the one that they grabbed, grabbed hold of more than any other. And they read through the word all the time, so they're very aware of all these, con- these two concepts. They were everywhere. But the conquering king was Messiah ben David. And he was the one that was going to come and free him from all their oppressors because they've been oppressed people through all throughout their history. So that's the one that they were always really looking for, this one that was going to take over, you know, conquer the enemies and, and come down and rule and reign. And so when we see the question like John the Baptist had uh, when he said, Go tell when he was in prison, and he said, "Go ask Jesus, are you the one, or do we look for another?" He was asking, not, "Are you the Messiah?" He knew he was the Messiah. He knew that in his mother's womb. He was saying, "Which one are you? Are you the suffering servant, or are you the conquering king?" Because there was such a division back then of what some people thought the, the Messiah Ben Joseph would come and die because they knew he from Isaiah 53 that he was going to suffer and die. But then that Messiah Ben David was going to come along and become conquering king right after him and free their enemies. And, and so John the Baptist was saying, are you the, are you the conquering king? Are you the suffering? You know, which one are you? And it makes sense in that context because they were always looking for the one. But um, we see that uh, in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, um, it, it said that there would be a prophet like Moses. And that's really interesting in light of the fact that um, we saw last night walking through the Passover, the three cups uh, where, where Jesus, the, the three cups, oh gee, there's so much to go back over <laughs> if anybody wasn't here. As I was studying the Passover over the years, you know, I asked the Lord to show me where is your heart. And he showed me that if you're going to do a Passover, you have to find his heart in the four cups of redemption because that's, those are the four steps we go through that Jesus leads us through. And it's in those four cups of redemption that we saw last night that we encountered his heart the fir- with the first cup when he showed us that the first step is that we have to cry out. It's, I will, it's from Exodus 6, 6, and 7. I will deliver you from the burden of the Egyptians. 
and the burden there means tolerance. I will the tolerance of your of your bondage. I'm going to I'm going to make it so you hate your bondage and you'll cry out and I'll come and deliver you. And we saw that that was the first cup to to cry out and ask him if there's any place that we're tolerating in our lives that we're in bondage to in any way that he would come down. It's, it comes first with a cry and God answers that cry. And then we saw the second cup to our redemption that the children of Israel went through was that cup of deliverance. He had to get them out of Egypt, which is a type of the world for us, get them free from a taskmaster, Pharaoh, which is like, you know, we're in bondage to Satan before we know the Lord. And he had to get them out of Egypt, and we saw that they had to put the blood on the doorposts, that he would pass over in judgment, um, pass through in judgment, but when he passes over, we, we see, saw that that word is like Psalm 91, when he puts his wing or the shadow of his wing over them and covers them and protects them in a place of refuge with him. We saw that the blood of, you know, that the blood on the doorposts was enough to get them out healed, that, you know, there was none lame among them when they left Egypt. And we, and it's the same for us. The blood of Jesus covers us and gets us out of the world. And then it's the blood of, the, of Jesus that heals our bodies. And then we saw the third cup of redemption that was, I will redeem you. And we saw the next thing that had to happen was God had to buy them back from Pharaoh because in Genesis 47, they agreed to be his possession. They sold themselves for grain. And so God had to transfer them from one kingdom to another. And he did that through the Red Sea. And we saw something happen of redemption when they were buried in those waters. And it was a type of baptism when the things that they came in agreement to in Egypt in their time, just like us in the world, we come into agreement with those habits and the attitudes and the ways of the world. God wanted a pure and spotless bride, and he had to get those things, cut off all the things of the world so he could take them to himself. And so the baptism was what cut off. We were buried with him in baptism, and there's a power of deliverance in that when we see principalities and powers and Pharaoh and his army floating in those seas and he's been disarmed. So the power of baptism, of disarming principalities and powers so that we can be free now to be his possession and he can be Lord of our life. But when they were raised up out of the the sea, we saw that um, they were going somewhere because that's where we left off last night, that they were going somewhere. And... um, that's what I want to talk about right now is Shavuot, if that's okay. If, yeah. Anyway, just an overview of redemption, that even the pattern in that, that the Messiah was coming, and we saw that he came as Messiah ben Joseph in those first four cups. We showed how he perfectly fulfilled those first four cups and how it lined up perfectly on the Jewish calendar to all those, the tenths they took the lamb, the fourteenth they killed the lamb, just like Jesus was killed that on the 17th when they rose up out of the water, it was the feast of, of the barley harvest, the, f- the first fruits of the barley harvest. He was raised from the dead, just like they were raised from the water. So there's, he became, you know, it was first Moses walked the children of Israel through this pattern that Moses later wrote down in Leviticus 23. And then Jesus, 1,500 years later, became, it said there will be a prophet like Moses, capital P, and 
he, he will speak to you about these things. And we saw that Jesus perfectly walked through that same pattern when he came 1,500 years later and kept those appointments. And, but I want to show you now, because we left off, every year when we do Passovers, we do those first three cups, and we make it and do the cups of redemption. And the glorious part of the third cup of redemption is when you get to see that Jesus had his, as Passover Seder that he did with his disciples, that he changed it into a betrothal cup. And um, so hard to do an overview because <laughs> there's so much. Okay, I feel like I'm just all over the place trying to catch up the people that weren't here, but I want to go on. And, and um, so it's, you can't miss that because, you know, it's, it's really the highlight of the New Testament that when you see that in an Jew, ancient Jewish wedding, which a lot of us aren't familiar with, that the brief version is that the father chooses a bride for his son. And the, the bridegroom-to-be would go to the bride's house and he would ask her parents' permission. And if they said yes, the bride-to-be would come out and he would put a cup of wine in front of her. It was called the cup of betrothal. And if she took the cup of wine and drank it, she was saying yes to the proposal. And then the, the bridegroom, would they would sign what was called a ketubah. It was a, a contract. It was the legal part of the, of the bridal ceremony. There was two parts in a bridal ceremony, the betrothal and then the consummation. So the third cup of wine, the cup, well, at a Passover Seder, but the first cup at a marriage ceremony, I'm sorry, I'm probably really confusing you, but it was, a, it was the betrothal cup. They would sign the ketubah, and then the contract was complete. And from that day on, that bride was veiled. If she went into the into public, she would be veiled. And everyone, she was known as one who was no longer her own. She'd been bought with a price because a mohar, a bride price, would have been paid for her from the bridegroom-to-be, you know, a, a large sum of money if he was wealthy. And it had to be a certain amount. There was restrictions. And would be given to her parents, paid, paid in full. In fact, that's what it was, you know, it, it was written, paid in full. And uh, that's part of what, you know, Jesus was, he paid it in full. It was finished. He paid the full price with his own blood um, for our, he paid our bride price. So what we saw, oh, and then I got to finish the best part of the story. He goes away, then he says, I'm going away. Um, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he goes and builds a chuppah, a bridal chamber, usually onto his father's house. And when his father says it's complete, then he goes and gets and abducts his bride. But that's where the saying comes from, no man knows the day or hour. It's, it's, it's wedding language. An ancient Jewish wedding would have that language in it. You know, the, the disciples sitting there at the Passover Seder would have known what he was saying when he said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to drink this cup of wine again with you until I get to my father's kingdom. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I am, you'll be also. And he was saying, I'm your bridegroom. This is the cup of betrothal. I'm doing a new covenant in my blood. I'm going to pay a price for you as my bride. And now I'm going to go away. And I won't drink the next cup of the bridal ceremony with the cup of consummation. And that's the cup I'm going to drink with you in my bridal chuppah that I'm going to prepare. 
And so Jesus was leaving, took this Passover Seder, and probably to the shock of his disciples, all of a sudden started talking wedding language. And they probably thought, oh my goodness, what in the world is he doing? You know, and, but they understood the language because it was in their culture. And that's where we see, you know, that he said he was a thief in the knife, night, a knife, a knife, because that's what a, a bridegroom was called. He would go and abduct the bride at an hour that she didn't know. And usually it was at midnight. And if you study midnight, it's very interesting what happens at midnight in the Bible. And at midnight, at the darkest hour, when there's the least amount of sun, when it's total darkness, he comes, usually, to get his bride. And that's a foreshadowing of something right there. And it's all through the Bible. There's so many clues. Once you get the pattern and the clues, you're going to see a whole lot. But... So she's taken away in this bridal huppah, or in this bridal uh, palaquin, carried on the shoulders of four men, accompanied by four maidens, four or ten maid, ten four men, ten virgins, carrying lanterns, all the way to the bridal chamber. And but she's waiting for the first, initially the sound of the shofar blast that says, "Behold, the bridegroom cometh," and then she knows the procession's on its way to get her to abduct her. She doesn't have much time. She would have had to spend the year sewing her wedding garments, having everything ready, preparing to be a bride, waiting and watching at the window, waiting for that shofar blast, because any minute he could be coming. And so he would take her to his bridal chamber. They'd do the, the consummation cup, the next cup of wine, and then disappear in the bridal chamber for seven days. So that's the gospel right there. That's, that's where we're all headed. You know, that's where he left us when he left the earth. When Jesus left the earth, he then gave a gift to the bride, which they would also do, and that was the gift of the Holy Spirit that we saw 50 days later. He left us his Holy Spirit in us. So he left us from this earth. He's away on a long journey right now, building that bridal chuppah to take us into. Our only part is to be that those that are set apart, not belonging to ourselves any longer, veiled, for any other lovers, and waiting and watching for his return. So that's yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to start talking about the fourth cup now. Since we've orchestrated nothing, I'll just interrupt here. <laughs> um, I'm just going to read Ephesians three to you and see um, if any of it touches your hearts. Because one of the things we shared last night is um, we really don't know all that the Lord has for us as far as why we're even doing this at this particular time here. But we really feel that we're here for England, as presumptuous as that may sound. But it's not because we can do anything anyway. But anyway, I'd like to read Ephesians 3 before Christie reads on, teaches on. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, to you Gentiles. Now keep in mind, even though many of our preconceived ideas would think that Paul is a Christian, he's a Jewish man. And... Um, He loves his people, and he's continued to be a Jew, but he's been sent to the Gentiles to disciple them. 
If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery that I have briefly written. And you might look at Romans 11, the mystery of Jew and Gentile, of the Gentiles being grafted in. There's a few other mysteries, but that's one of them. By which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets. And keep in mind at this point, the only apostles and prophets were Jewish. At this point, that's the leadership of the body of Christ. Um, The mystery revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective, effective working of his power. So Paul has been sent to the Gentiles to tell them that they've been grafted in. That he hasn't started a new religion. But that by the revelation of the Spirit and by the authority of the prophets, that means all these books and the apostles, that he used to tell them that they've been brought into the story. The romance, the bridal story. Um, To me, who am less than the rest of all the saints, and at this point, when he's talking about saints, he's talking about Jews, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make known and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. And the only way you can have fellowship is to be together. And the way you have fellowship of the mystery, if the mystery is Jew and Gentile, Gentiles grafted in, the only way you can have fellowship is for Jews and Gentiles to be together. So he's inviting the Gentiles into the story. He's not inviting himself out of the story, as we usually think. And to make known for all to see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which was from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. To the intent that now, in these days, that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And the next word says, by the church. But the word there is ecclesia. 
which is any gathering of people for a purpose. <clears throat> that this gathering of Jew and Gentile to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. So there's this authority that's given when this mystery becomes evident as Jew and Gentile come together. As God in his mercy takes a story that was written to the Jews and all of a sudden opens the door and includes all the nations. That it would shake the powers and principalities. <clears throat> According to the eternal purposes which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I asked, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation, for which is your glory. So, he is laying down his life for these Gentile believers to come in to be part of this story. For this reason, I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that from whom the family in heaven and earth is named, Jew and Gentile, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the Jews, with all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, this love that has invited you into the love story to be his bridal people, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory to the church, to the ecclesia, by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So, Abba, as we, uh, as we begin to touch these things that are precious on your heart, God, that you've entrusted, even in, in weak and broken vessels, the things that you've tenderly shared in your humility, even with Christy through Spirit of Revelation, and to many that have gone before and many that will come after, Lord. That you would grant us to, to the riches of the kingdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God that's been hidden. But is now to be revealed. Jew and Gentile, one new man. The mystery of the fellowship, Lord the beautiful love story that you began that was lost in the garden that you desired on the mountain, Lord, that you desired on the cross beam, Lord, that you have for these last days 
a beautiful bridal people waiting for the bridegroom, the Jewish man, Christ Jesus. Lord, deliver us from all of our pride and our false theologies and our misrepresentations, our well-meaning even, Lord, that you'd grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, tender hearts, Lord, childlike spirits, that that yes in our hearts could increase. You see us as lovely, beautiful, set apart for your purposes in these days. And I pray this in your holy name, Jesus. So, I'm going to share my story about Shavuot, the next spring, the last spring feast that'll be 50 days from tomorrow, if we count on the calendar. And you know, like I said, when I was starting out, I was compartmentalizing the feast, and I knew that after Passover, something else that something wasn't complete. Passover and Shavuot are bookends, and they complete the spring, you know, the spring pattern of of Jesus's first coming, and it's something complete for the Jewish people too. You're going from one to the other, but I was I was rehearsing them separately, and so I knew there was a counting of the Omer. It's called an Omer is a measure of wheat. So counting from the first, it goes from the barley harvest to the wheat harvest. And the barley harvest is considered in Israel. There's, there's, two, um, there's two agricultural seasons in Israel. There's the spring harvest, it's called, and it's the former rain. It's the, they've got two rainy seasons. It's the former rain season. And that's mostly barley and wheat are the crops. So when you're in the, reading in the Bible and you see barley and wheat, it's, it's actually a, a clue to the season. We know that Ruth went to Bethlehem, Judah, it says, at the time of the barley harvest. That's very significant and prophetic because um, there was something, there was a picture of redemption there that God was also, well, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But So uh, two agricultural seasons. And, and then the latter, uh, <clears throat> the agricultural season in the fall is called the latter rain. <clears throat> and that's mostly fruits, olives, grapes. So when you're seeing grapes, there's usually a, a picture. It's, you're going to know they're probably talking about the fall feasts or you know something happening in the fall. And there's a lot about grape har- harvest in the end times. So anyway, there's lots of clues, even with the crops. And there's a scripture in Hosea 6.3. It says, you know, let us press on to know the Lord because his coming is going to be like the latter or the former and latter rains to water the earth. And he's talking about those two seasons that he's going to come to the earth in. So, anyway, there's lots of um, clues. But anyway, when I first started out with Shavuot, I kind of um, wanted to get first the prophetic picture. So I started out, and the first impression of it was in John's parents' synagogue. And when I went, it was all decorated. And they had two huge loaves of challah. Challah is braided bread that you put on a... T- well, Friday night dinner, it's, they have two loaves for Sabbath dinner, but at Shavuot, they have these huge loaves. They're gigantic, and they were up front, 
and there was vines and flowers and greenery. And when I walked in, I, I didn't know what it was. And somebody said, oh, that's for Shavuot. It's Shavuot. And I thought, oh, it looks like it's decorated for a wedding because the spring flowers are out. And that time of year, they decorate their houses with with flowers and they, they bake the challah. And um, it's the... It's commemorating, you know, God giving the law on Mount Sinai, and I thought, well, that's that's good. And so they um, they stay up all night and they read the word, and you know, there's lots of really good. We never have made it all night, but anyway, starting out, these are the pictures that I first learned about. And in ancient Israel, Shavuot, they would come in in caravans, and as they came in from all, because there's three pilgrim feasts that the men in Israel were required to be at. There's uh, Passover. Shavuot and uh, Feast of Tabernacles. So at these three times a year, they were required to come. And so Jewish people from all over the world, that Eastern world there, would come in in caravans bringing their first fruits of their harvest. And it was was, um, at Shavuot. It was the wheat harvest. So when they would come in, um, you would see all over the hillsides of Jerusalem, they would go and get wheat to be cut the day of Shavuot to be offered in the in the in the temple they would tie red ribbons around the the gathered wheat um, so you'd come in and you'd see wheat all over bundled with red ribbons tied around it and you know just people rejoicing and dancing and it was spring and there was flowers and I was just caught up in this beautiful picture in ancient Israel that that sounded really amazing and I was asking God okay okay trying to get the picture first, and then maybe you're going to share your heart. And so I knew all these things, the synagogue that looked like a wedding, and I had this ancient Israel picture. So I thought the only way he's going to show his heart to me is if I set this thing up. So John and I and two of our friends, they even talked to us afterwards. We, um, It was a lot of work, and for two months we constructed this, we rented a hall in the middle of our city, and we decided, in, in order to get the picture, I was going to have to construct the city of, <laughs> of Jerusalem. And, and the, all right, I mean, I'm really, it's embarrassing to talk about this, honestly. It was kind of, God and I laughed about it later, but. Yeah, I know. So you're so you're so lucky you didn't know us then, because I had so much energy on this thing, and I was so, I was just. I wanted to find him. And so I thought, oh, surely if I set up this beautiful picture, because I wasn't getting it, just reading about it. So I thought, I'll set up the picture, and then God's going to come. And so we constructed with plywood, you know, the temple, and we had big, huge, it's really hard to even think about it. <laughs> we had we had balloons that looked like grapes. They were purple balloons with green strings, you know, adorning this thing. And we had a little trail going through the room. And, you know, everybody was supposed to come with their families and go down the trail and go into the temple and offer their, oh, it was, I don't know what we were thinking. And then big palm trees and, oh, we sponge painted, you know, the walls of Jerusalem to look like stones. And, oh, but there was so much momentum on it. I was getting, I felt so alive during the preparation. Even up until the day that we had these hundred people, friends and community, you know, come. We had the tables all set and there was baskets with wheat coming out of them on the tables and red ribbons tied around them. And, 
you know, we could, we just pictured this evening where um, at the end of the evening we were going to gather together, you know, like this red ribbon offering. We were going to pray and the Holy Spirit was going to come just like Pentecost, which is what this holiday is. And the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out. And we were just going to have the beginning of this amazing revival. And um, so we set it all up. And before the people walked in, I felt the anointing in the room. It was so thick. You could, you know, it was just gorgeous to me, this picture, because there was a picture. And our friend Tim Ruffin, who, that's a long story too, but he would come and do these holidays with him. And he said all the way there he was going to share. And he said he, could, he, said he felt the Lord so strong. He drove, drove eight hours. He said it was like his wheels weren't even touching the ground. He, we had this great anticipation. Well, I, it was at a time when I didn't think women were supposed to get up and I didn't want to look pushy and so like I had a, all these things to share. So I handed my index cards to John <laughs> to, to share my revelations that I've gotten so far. And he read them in this monotone voice. Because when they're not, when they're not yours, you don't... You know, you don't feel anything on him. He wasn't getting it. He didn't even want to do this stuff. He was just humoring me. And I drugged this poor man through two months of preparation. And it was it was so costly. And I was just obsessed with getting this picture set up. And then God was going to show up. And it was the most horrible, oppressive. As soon as the people walked in the room, the only thing I can liken it to is I felt like Cinderella, you know, that I'd been at this ball and I was just... The crowning glory in the middle of the room, our temple, was so beautiful five minutes before. But when people started walking in, it was like that turned into a pumpkin. I felt like, you know, just, it just, the whole thing was just horrible. As soon as the people walked in, that wasn't their fault. They had no idea what, what are these people doing? It looked ridiculous. But, you know, the evening we got through it and it wasn't horrible. The food was good and they had some nice baskets to take home, but... You know, I went home that night, two months of preparation. I had such expectation that the Lord was going to show his heart to me. I mean, maybe, I don't know what it all was involved, but I just laid in bed that night and I said, where were you? You know, why did you, I felt so abandoned. You know, I felt like, okay, I, don't, I want to look for you, but you didn't show me where you were. I didn't see anything. And I just had to go through this. I just sat there crying. I said, where were you? Why didn't you come? And, you know, I just felt his pre- pleasure and he said I loved it I said no nobody nobody loved it no it was horrible it was like let's never talk about it again when I found the pictures in a box about a month ago I thought oh why do we still have these pictures it's like this it's like a humiliation kind of and maybe he was dealing with my pride that's totally possible but I really had this childlike heart that if the picture was there you know we would see something glorious and I felt like him say I loved looking down on a city and seeing a picture of my redemption. He said, I loved it. I thought, okay, <laughs> I'm glad you loved it. But for years after that, it was kind of like this wound almost. You know, I mean, it's not like I was harboring this thing against the Lord, but it was almost this wound. And when this holiday would come along and we would take people through the Passover and they'd say, oh, that was great. We saw the bridegroom and... Now can we do Shavuot together? And I'd say, no, not really. You know, I don't know what to do. You know, you can, yeah, you can bake your challah and they eat dairy products because it's the giving of the word on Mount Sinai and that's nice and you can eat Jewish foods and yeah, you can stay up all night and they read the book of Ruth and that's not, that's never been fun to me, but yeah, we've made it a little while and that's always been so oppressive. You know, any, 
I mean, so I, when people say, can we do Shavuot? And I'll go, yeah, you go do it. It's fine. But I really don't want to. You know, it's been a hard place for me. And so I really kind of put it on the shelf for 20-something years. And I tried to hope that nobody would ask to do it and that it could just kind of pass by and, you know, just be a... And, but finally, um, a few years back, I don't know, I've lost track of time in this whole journey, but, you know, I saw something when I read Rabbi Greenberg. Irving Greenberg has a, has a book. Has a Robert Greenberg has a book called The Jewish Way, and if you want to find the heart of the holidays and his view of Jewish redemption, I can say it's a really safe book to read. I wouldn't recommend a lot of the books he directed me to because sometimes it was just one paragraph and he said toss the rest. But I would recommend that book. He's not a born-again believer. He's a Jewish rabbi, but he understands the heart of redemption and he loves God. So in his book, I was reading something, and I came to this part that said that many Jews, when they celebrate Shavuot, 50 days after Passover, they rehearse it like it's a, a marriage ceremony, you know, like a marriage to God, and they go, they say their vows. And then um, they had this whole thing, you know, a script written out that they would say, you know, we the children, we the people of Israel take you, God, to be our God. And it's this whole wedding, you know, wedding vows. And I thought, what is that? And, you know, it seemed to imply that you know, there was a wedding that took place up on Mount Sinai. And that got my attention. You know, that was something to go on. So I started really looking and reading, and Exodus 19 is where he takes them to the mountain. You know, there's a 50-day journey after they come up out of the sea. And he takes them to a mountain in Exodus 19. And it says that there's a loud shofar blast on that mountain. Uh, There's three shofar blasts that are significant in Jewish understanding. And they're important to know about. The first shofar blast happens up on the mountain when he brought them to that mountain to Miriam. And it's at Shavuot where that first ram's horn is is blown. It's called the first trump. The second shofar blast that's significant in the Jewish festivals is at the first fall feast of Yom Teruah, or Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets. And that one's known as the last trump. And the reason is, and we're not going to talk about the fall feast, but the reason is, is there's a hundred blasts that day in the temple. And there's one long blast at the end that is the final blast. And that's called the last trump. Only a very seasoned shofar blower can hold a note that long. But that's the last trump. And then the great trump, which is also mentioned in the Bible, is on Yom Kippur, the second fall feast. And they all really are have to do with the signal of a bridegroom. So when I saw this first, this trumpet blast, because I knew about those three trumpets, and I thought, oh, there's the first trumpet blast, and you are blowing a shofar, inviting your bride to a mountain. And so the bride goes up, and you see this whole interaction there. It says, even God's language, and right before that in Exodus 19, he says that he carried them on eagle's wings and that they were his special treasure, special possession out of all the earth. And he remembers them in Jeremiah 2, too, as those, he said, I remember you and the kindness of your youth, how you went after, you know, when I betrothed you to me, and you went after me in the wilderness. 
So God's memory of this children, of, you know, the children of Israel going through the wilderness, bringing them to this mountain was tenderly carrying them on eagle's wings, taking them to this mountain. And he was, it was there that he wanted to marry, marry them. And it says um, that at that mountain there was a, a thunder and lightning and, you know, it was a, you know, trembling and um, that the children of Israel were afraid and that only Moses went up. And um, what happened to Moses is a very interesting picture because he disappeared into a cloud. He was somewhere, we know. It says God came down, and Moses went up. He was on the sea of glass, and that's later is when um, that's described. But Moses goes up, and there's some picture happening up on that mountain but when you read the language of Exodus 19, it's, it's, you know, God giving, telling Moses what to tell him. And basically, the children of Israel said, all that you have said, we will do. So it's like God is up there saying, I take you to be my people. If you take me to be your God, you know, then when you say, when you agree to that, then it's an I do. It's a, it's a, there's a contract. There was a covenant going on. But, you know, God says in Deuteronomy 28, Here's the blessings for my bride. If you say I do, don't take marriage lightly. Because if you say I do, here's what's going to happen. If you're a faithful bride, then here's all the blessings. This is how I'm going to take care of you. Remember, a Jewish bridegroom brought a ketubah, a contract with him. And he, it was the contract that the parents of the bride knew how well the bridegroom was going to take care of their daughter. And it was an agreement that he would care for her. And God is basically saying, in my agreement to take care of you, this is how I'm going to treat you. You know, blessed will you be. And, it, you know, you, you've read Deuteronomy 28. It's all the blessings. And um, it's wonderful. But if you're an unfaithful bride, this is what's going to happen. You know, all the curses of an unfaithful bride. But even if you read through the curses, he's still speaking to a bride because he said, you're going to be so, so uh, miserable that you're going to even go try to sell yourself back as a slave into Egypt. But no, but you're going to be so wretched and so miserable that nobody's going to have you, that you'll have to cry out and remember me as your bridegroom and you'll, I'll take you back and then restore. It's never for the purpose. His judgment is never for the purpose of and it's always for the purpose of restoring because he has a passion to get this bride back. So there's something that happened up there that was, was getting my attention, and, I, and it was really good, and it changed, um, it changed the way I saw this holiday, and I knew that there was a wedding that, transaction that took place there, and I knew God was calling them into something, and I knew it had to do with that cup of consummation, and I knew there was a picture of something Moses was doing, but I knew that I still wanted to know what his heart was. What were his emotions? What happened up on that mountain um, that made all the difference? And I, I um, later on, I was teaching a class, and I, they wanted to start at the fall feast, and I said, "No, I got to take you through, you know, the spring feast first. But we got to the. They were all caught up, and you know, it's so exciting when you see the bridal picture. But it isn't until, you know, you, you have to see the whole story. And I thought, oh, I've got, you know, I can tell them that it's a wedding. I can tell them something. But I really wanted, after 30-some years, 
I really wanted him to share with me what he was feeling and what his heart was to really fill out the experience up there and what was going on. And um, it was about 20 minutes before class. And um, I was just sitting in the car and I said, so what was it? What was it you were feeling? You know, your people said yes. What was it you were feeling up in that mountain? What happened up there? And I felt like in that 20 minutes, it was almost instantly I felt him answer. And I felt like he said, that was where I made my heart vulnerable. And, you know, I thought about that. And I said, what? You know, you're God. You, you can't make your heart vulnerable. You know, what does that mean that you made your heart vulnerable? And until you're a bridegroom, you know, God had never revealed himself until Mount Sinai as a bridegroom. He had revealed himself as creator God, Elohim, in Genesis. He was almighty God. He was with a mighty outstretched arm. He was powerful. He did signs and wonders. He revealed himself as El Shaddai all through the wilderness when he was caring for them. You know, there was a lot of ways that he revealed himself. But it wasn't until that mountain on Exodus 19 that he revealed himself for the first time as a bridegroom. And once he did that, it changed everything for him. Because once you're a bridegroom, and anyone that's married in this room knows it, you can have your heart broken. And it's from that point on, if you read all of the scripture that follows in the prophets, there's heartbreaking language that comes from God. And so if you don't see this as a pivotal point, not just in the history of Israel, It's a pivotal point that happens to understand the whole Bible that God would dare or even how can he make himself that vulnerable? How can he love us that much that he would dare reveal his heart and make his heart open and vulnerable for his heart to be broken? You know, it's just, it was just so hard for me. And I thought, am I really hearing something Right, but if I read these scripture verses to you, you're going to go, okay, now in in light of that, it really does make sense. Let me read some of these to you. Um, You know, it's that one, of course, from, um, but there's part of Jeremiah 2-2 that I didn't read, and it says, okay, so here we have Mount Sinai, and then after that is all the language of the prophets. And it's, you sense in, in the rest of the scriptures from then on that there's God calling back to an unfaithful bride. And it's, you know, in Jeremiah 2, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land that sown. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me and have followed idols? And have become idolaters. Neither did they say, oh, where are you? Who brought you up from the land of Egypt? Who led you through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits? Through a land of drought and the shadow of death? Through a land no one crossed and where no one dwelt? He's saying, didn't I take care of you? Wasn't I a good husband? See, because in that wilderness, between counting of the Omer, he was doing something incredible. He was showing himself... He was showing them that they could trust him and that he was going to be a good bridegroom. He, he fed them with manna in the wilderness. He brought water from a rock. He covered with them, them with a cloud 
by day so the sun didn't get to him, and he, he led them by a pillar of fire at night. He protected them from their enemies, so their enemies couldn't even see them or get near them. He fed them, he took care of them, he wooed them, he was present. You know, there's a scripture in the New Testament that says that Jesus was there in the wilderness. He was the rock that followed them in the wilderness. You know, he was there and present with them because he wanted them to know, I'm taking you to a mountain and when I take you there for marriage, I'm going to... We're going to enter into a covenant because I want a bride and I want to show you the goodness and kindness of the kind of bridegroom I'm going to be to you. And, you know, unfortunately we know the story that they complained and grumbled and weren't very thankful and didn't really see who he was. By the time they got to the mountain, they really didn't want to go up there. He was too terrifying. But it says also... um, in Jeremiah 3.20, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you treacherous, dealt treacherous with me, O house of Israel. Um, and then there's a scripture in Ezekiel 6. It says, And those of you who will escape will remember me among the nations where they were carried captive, because I was crushed by their adulterous heart. And they crushed God's heart with their harlotry. And by their eyes that played the harlot, they will loathe themselves for the evils which they've committed. You know, of course, in Hosea, we see he he spent the whole book talking about this harlot bride and how much he wanted her back. And we know at the end, he's going to draw her back in tenderness. But, you know, there's language even in Hosea 2 that says, okay, because of your unfaithfulness, I'm going to take away your mirth. I'm going to take away your joy. I'm going to take away the festivals and the Sabbath because that's what the festivals were. They were gifts given to a bride to have appointments with him so they could celebrate and rejoice. They were commanded to rejoice. It was just as spiritual to rejoice as it was to fast. And, and in fact, somebody that didn't rejoice, they said, is going to have to be accountable someday for not rejoicing with when the Lord when he has celebrations. Because he did parties. The parties in Israel, the feasts of Israel, were known throughout the whole ancient world. You know, that we see that as a, what, Psalm 137, when we were captive and we were sitting, you know, on the shores of Babylon on the river, and our captors said to us, you know, we've heard of you. We rem- we've heard about the famous feasts that you've had with your God. And we, we heard the noises and the... We've heard of the celebrations that go on for seven long days, not stopping the joy and the rejoicing and the dancing and the merriment. You know, we've heard that you have songs that are wonderful. You know, will you play one of those songs for us? And they were lamenting because they couldn't in a land of captivity. That the thing that God removed from them, it said in Hosea 2, was the joy of their festivals that he gave them to celebrate together. And it's kind of like he's saying, okay, you don't want me anymore, that's fine. But my parties, my feasts, my appointments, they're all going to be removed from you. And you can see what it's like to live without me. And maybe you'll miss me. And maybe you'll lament. And maybe you'll want me back. And that's always his motives. When he withdraws his presence or when he takes something away from them, it was always for the purpose of just maybe, you know, they'll, they'll want me back. 
And is that scripture verse, you know, that there's always, you see that all through the Psalms, too, there's, there's language in the Bible that says, where is this passion? It's there's a fury of a scorned lover, is what we see. That's what we see. And that's dangerous. The fury of a scorned lover is a very dangerous emotion. Because even when it says, is it, uh, where is it? 127? No, I can't remember now. It's in there. But anyway, you'll know what I'm referring to. It says that he sent their judgment. He sent his judgment against them. And it says, and then he was as one that awoke as though drunk with wine. And it was like, what have I done? And then he gave back to them. And it's like even the language of describing himself, that he was just in this, this rage of emotion that he sent his judgment because he was so jealous. You know, when he says he's a jealous God, there's a jealousy that's attached to being a bridegroom. That's a righteous jealousy. If, if somebody has a, is a bridegroom and their wife or their husband is unfaithful, there's a righteous jealousy that God understands. And it's totally justified. Because there's a covenant there, and we're to fight for that covenant. You know, we're to be jealous for it like God is, because he fights for that. He doesn't take it lightly. They can walk away from him, but he will never walk away from them. And he will get them back in the end, because he has a plan. He is not going to lose this bride. He is tenacious in his heart and his passion to get a bride back, even if they have to go through some hard times. He's going to get it so they'll cry out and they'll one day see him. And so there's the language of a bridegroom that we see through the rest of Scripture that really explains this love story and the passion that he has to get a bride back. And when when I saw that, I thought, okay, I understand now why at every Passover, I used to think we were neglecting the fourth cup. And we wouldn't take it at the end of the evening. You know, you go through the betrothal ceremony and you're so caught up in it and you've had a long night and you've celebrated your redemption. You've celebrated what God did in the Passover. You you see that cup and now communion's never going to be the same because you see it as a betrothal cup that he's one day coming back for you again and he wants us to remember that, that he paid a bride price and he's coming again. Get your heart strengthened with that forever. And the fourth cup was just kind of there, and it was, okay. And I would kind of say, okay, yeah, there's one more cup, and it's the cup of consummation. <laughs> you know, and that was it. You know, and I thought, well, that was really not doing it honor. But it didn't ever seem to have anything on it. And last year we did a Passover with some young people, and one of our close friends, Daniel, said, why aren't you ever setting this expectation for the last cup? We're not going to do it, but we're going to count the omer. Because something in 50 days is coming that's really exciting. He said, why don't, you, why don't you share this expectation of the counting of the Omer? And, you know, don't worry. There's something else coming. You don't have to wait. There's another feast coming that's, that's going to be about a wedding, too. And I thought, I don't know, because I never thought of it. You know, because after that long evening, I don't know. I never, over the years, I didn't connect them, even though they're very connected. Because that fourth cup of consummation is... I will take you to myself. The three steps of redemption are how he gets a bride in bondage 
takes her to be a son or daughter, takes them to be a son or daughter. You know, out of Egypt I called my son. Makes them priests to function with him. You know, and then the final cup, the cup of consummation, is the destination. And it's where we're going. That cup of consummation was on the mountain. And Moses was, I believe, I mean, this is where we get into my interpretation. I'm not saying I know, but I really have looked at that over and over. And there's a glimpse of something that Moses, I think Moses was the one that um, he had an intimate heart for the Lord. He had a bridal heart. He entered into that tent of meeting and knew God face to face. He wasn't afraid to go up. He was excited to go up. He wanted God to show him his glory. And um, I believe that he was the forerunner of going in a bridal chuppah. It was a cloud that came down. And I believe there's something that happened there that's a mystery. But I believe it's a shadow and type. Well, it was a reality. So it's more than a shadow and type. But it's something speaking of. Remember, it said there's a prophet like Moses coming. And we saw that Jesus was that prophet that they had looked for. And they, that was even referred to. Are you the prophet? They were referring to, are you that prophet like Moses? And he was. But we see that. Phil, can you put up my kindergarten chart? Yeah. I, I made a chart. I've had it. I've carried it. I've tried to explain this for years, and I've carried this picture in my mind. And Mandy will appreciate this when you have a picture in your mind, and it sometimes comes out. I'm not an artist, obviously. I never thought I'd be showing anybody this chart. One day I said, okay, I've got to make this picture for myself because it made sense to me, but I didn't know how to explain it. So this is my Ph.D. chart. This is what... Happened after 48 years of digging through books and scholars and asking God, where are you? Where's your heart? This is 48 years. That's 38 years. Sorry, I'm not that old. I'm old, but not that old. 38 years um, of this is my Ph.D. You have to go through the complicated, and you're supposed to, I think, end up at the simple where you can explain it to a five-year-old. So here we go. Let me stand up and kind of show you where... This, that's not a fish. That's um, It looks like a fish. That's Mount Sinai, the brown mountain in the middle. <laughs> you can tell I need a, an artist to help me with this. But it started in a garden, you know, where God lost his bride. I put the Noah's Ark there because um, it's important in the prophetic history because, like, um, yeah, Rob, I know, Ann and Rob. Rob and I were talking about that. We didn't talk about it last night, but it was on the first fruits of the barley harvest, that day that they came up out of the Red Sea, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, the very same day, the 17th of Aviv, was when Noah's ark rested on that mountain. And that's a very prophetic thing, so I had to include Noah's, Noah's little boat on there. And then we know that God drew one man, Abraham. He chose a family. And and it was through him the promise that um, through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we saw that his Abraham and his sons went into Egypt and they became a nation. And this is Moses with his staff. And I don't know if you can tell that those are three cups, but those are three cups of wine. 
And those are the three steps of redemption that we went through, the you know, coming out of Egypt and the blood on the doorposts and the deliverance out, the redemption through the waters and, you know, the taking them across the Red Sea to dry land. But the last, oh, you know, my cup fell off. No, it didn't. It's the eye. Okay. It's on the fish's eye. <laughs> Somebody else said they saw a bear. I think it was Christina. That's why. Anyway, um, it's, we see the first shofar blast. Um, that so far the, the first trump and so the cloud came down and that was the fourth cup the cup of consummation so we see this divine romance of what God did first with Moses he was the first one to come and then a prophet like Moses so I put the, the wheat um, there because during that time of real darkness in Israel when the judges were ruling there were evil kings you know it was really um, a dark time spiritually for Israel. God sent a promise and a hope of something in the book of Ruth. And the wheat harvest, you know, the book of Ruth happens between the barley and the wheat harvest. And Ruth goes to Bethlehem, Judah, at the barley harvest. And barley is the poorest of crops. It's for poor people. And she gleaned in the barley fields. And we know that at the wheat harvest, she, her redeemer Boaz came. So there was a Gentile bride that was married to a Jewish redeemer, um, Boaz. And those two joined together is a picture that I think God wanted to set in history, a ex- uh, picture of our redemption of Jew and Gentile coming together. Um, oh, I just have to say another picture of that. That's really important, I think, for us praying for Israel. That um, that Ruth, you know, was brought in, and it was at a time when um, this this man. I don't know if you've ever heard of Reuben Duran, but he gave a really good teaching one time about a, how at a time when um, Naomi, you know, she was childless, she was barren, she'd lost everything, and it was at that time that a, a, God took a Gentile girl joined her, him, her to a Jewish man and, and produced the future Messiah. You know, the, future, the Messiah came through that lineage. And when Ruth had that baby, she placed it in Naomi's arms. And he saw it as a picture of a Gentile in intercession. It was a womb that God needed the first time to bring forth the Messiah. And he said he's going to need that same Gentile womb to birth the second coming and that he uses the Gentile and Jew together to birth the two comings of the Messiah. And so it's a prophetic picture of, you know, as the Gentile uh, believers, we are going to have the privilege of, through intercession, God's going to borrow that womb again to pray for a nation and the second coming to bring that about. So Naomi needed Ruth to have her lineage go on. So I felt like it was important to put it there because it's part of our prophetic history. And um, so then we come to the time of Jesus, the prophet like Moses, who we saw walk through the exact same steps. He brought the same steps of redemption. So I put the three cups there. But we see... um, 
Oh boy, now we have to go into, well this is, I don't have to go into the teaching, this is end time teaching, but we, we know that Jesus is coming with clouds. We know Thessalonians says there's a time when there's going to be a trumpet blast, and um, he's, we know that the bridegroom's going to come with a trumpet blast, the last trump, it's called in the New Testament, and um, we know that Jesus said he was the thief in the night. And we know that he's coming with clouds, and he came with clouds, came down in a cloud with Moses. I believe there's a wedding chuppah coming down. It's just like when they catch up the bride at a Jewish wedding. She's not on earth, she's not in heaven, but it's somewhere in between. And our Greek minds take that, and we think, that doesn't compute, because we're, we're one-dimensional. But the thing you have to understand is there's two theaters always going on in Hebrew thought. There's what's going on in heaven, and there's what's going on in earth. So there's always two theaters going on. And if there's two theaters going on at the same time, then a lot of things will make more sense. But it's okay if I don't mean to. I hope I didn't say that and confuse you. But there's a cloud coming down, I believe. I believe there's a cup of consummation Jesus promised he was going to take with his bride. And then I put a crown there because there is a conquering king coming on a white horse. I love this. this is such a, you know, it isn't, I love fairy tales, and I like sappy love stories, and it's because Jesus does. He wrote them, and he has the best divine romance ever written because there really is a damsel in distress, and there really is a king coming on a white horse to rescue, and we get to be part of that great wedding procession. You know, uh, conquering uh, a king riding into the city of Jerusalem in ancient days, if he came in on a donkey, he was announcing peace. But if he came in on a white horse, he was announcing war. So even the, you know, we see that it was in Zephaniah 9.9, you know, that he will come to you lowly and riding on a donkey. And that's how Jesus rode into Jerusalem the first time. But we see in Revelations, we know the end of the story. He's coming on a white horse, and we see in Revelations 19 and 21 that there's a bride coming down adorned for her husband. So I like that story. And, I, and so the great trump, so again, the first trump, a bride to a mountain. The last trump, a bride in a cloud. The great trump, a bridal procession coming down. Cause that's, that represents another fall feast. And then the final story is uh, a garden because, well, there's Feast of Tabernacles, which I believe is the Millennial Kingdom, where we're reigning and ruling with this king that comes to earth. But remember, Jewish people see that God's throne's coming down to earth, and he's going to restore and redeem all things. And that's all through scripture, too. There's a day coming when all things will be redeemed. All creation groans for that day, and that garden will be restored. Now, the feast, if you read about in um, Leviticus 23, where all the feasts are listed, you'll see that the first holy convocation, which is to be rehearsed because it's a picture of something, is Shabbat, Sabbath. And I didn't know what to do with that, so I just jumped right to Passover. I thought, someday I'll understand why you listed that first. And now I see why he listed the Sabbath first, because... That, again, has been an ongoing thing I've asked him about. But a few years ago, sitting in the prayer room, I wasn't even asking the question. And he said, the Sabbath is a place. And I thought, okay. 
And I asked him a lot about that. And the Sabbath is the final destination. And the reason that Jewish people celebrate it weekly is because to keep this dream and mandate of redemption alive, God knew the vision had to always be before them. That if they lost the vision of where they were headed, they would lose the love story and lose the vision of where they're, what they were all about. So he said, every week, I want you to step into a place and pretend like the whole world has been restored and that I'm on the earth ruling and reigning with you. On that day, there's no grumbling, there's no complaining, there's nothing wrong. You don't talk about your problems. You step into, at sunset, the Sabbath, and you pretend like everything is wonderful and perfect. You talk about him, you have fellowship, you eat meals, you have feasts, you enjoy the day, and you enjoy the rest that's coming when the whole earth has been restored. But once a, once a week, I want you to rehearse this so you won't forget where you're going, that you always keep the destination. And do you know, <clears throat> do you know how offensive that is to the enemy? That when you step in every Friday night at sundown and you light your candles and you're saying, I'm proclaiming this day that there's coming a day when the enemy is no longer going to rule and reign on this planet. I'm proclaiming a day when Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning on the earth and I'm going to be ruling and reigning with him. You know, we're making a proclamation that what we see is not what, what's going to be, that darkness is going to be off the face of the earth, that evil is going to be gone, that the glory of the Lord will be seen all over the earth. The enemy hates it. He hates it. And anything, I've, I've learned through the years that anything he takes so much time to attack, confuse, and make such a religious thing that nobody wants to do it, is something you should take a look at again. Yeah. I mean, the issue of tongues, I mean, you know, you think after a while, please, can we not do this issue anymore, you know, or whatever it is, or I don't know. There's so many issues in the church, and we get so hung up on the issues. And if there's an issue that the enemy's put into confusion and all sorts of conflict and strife and division, it's probably because there's something on it that the enemy wants to make sure we don't understand. But when we step into the Sabbath, we're proclaiming that we're a people of redemption, that we've been grafted in to a philosophy and a mindset that's here to redeem the earth, that we're a people to bring salt and light to a dark world, that we're to wake up every day asking, who can we redeem with you today, Jesus? We're betrothed to a redeemer, and we want to be like you. We want to be a pure and spotless bride redeeming the earth together. You know, sometimes just smiling at somebody is redemption. Because they need to know that be validated. It's so much fun to wake up in the morning and say, "How can I redeem today? What can I do for somebody? How can I encourage somebody today?" You know, and to live a life of redeeming the world with Him, and proclaiming, and entering into His festivals of redemption, and inviting, bidding other people to come to the wedding because there's a wedding coming, and that's real. And we get to be part of it. It's our story. This is our story. And we don't have to be theologians and scholars to get it. You know, he speaks these things to simple and to the young, and children can get this story. But we need to be strengthened in this, this love story because it's time for that. 
You know, you're, you're special to him. He paid a bride price for you. He's building a place to take you. And all he's asking for is to love him back and to be a bride that's waiting and yearning for him to come. It's really a good way to live. It's really the gospel, isn't it? So I think that's where we'll stop. Thank mm-hmm. you.